Have you ever wondered what happens if you die at a national park? We have. Today, we're answering all your questions. Welcome to Plot Twist. Hi, it's Morgan here, Morgan Extraordinaire. I can hold my pee for 24 hours in the woods. Hey, I'm Janelle. And when I got my first pocket knife at the age of 12, I cut my hand so bad, my parents had to drive me almost an hour from the middle of the woods to get stitches. This is Plot Twist, A Grave Affair. We're talking about everything that happens at the funeral home and beyond. In October of last year, we visited the fall foliage at the scenic Acadia National Park in Maine. Last year. It was last year. It wasn't really that Yeah, because it about. was 2022. While we were searching for parking near the Beehive Trail, which was an absolute nightmare, we almost accidentally joined a search and rescue operation. We parked on the side of the road behind what we thought were a line of cars from fellow hikers. When we got out of the car, we noticed a white utility van and a dozen or so people in climbing helmets and harnesses. Our morbid asses were convinced we were about to stumble upon a dead body out in the woods. Convinced. Convinced. Scared. Excited. Scared. We were mostly scared. Yeah, a little too excited, too. This made us think back to May 2021 when we climbed Angel's Landing at Zion National Park. For those of you who don't know, at the top of the trail, there is this chain section where you have to scramble across narrow rocks while holding onto a chain for about a half mile to the peak. We could look down on either side of us and see 5,500 feet down to the ground. What would they do if I fell and splatted? Repel down the mountain? Hike through the woods until they found me? Just leave me there for the buzzards? It was at this point we needed to know what, what happens, happens if you, if you die, die at a, a national, national park. park. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> that it was just good. Hit me. I was like, yeah. Yes. All right. So let's answer the first question. What national park am I most likely to die in? I mean, as we already know, you can die anywhere. But there are some parks that are a little bit more dangerous than others. The parks with the most deaths are the most frequently visited parks. Lake Mead National Recreation Area, Yosemite, Grand Canyon, and the Natchez Trace Parkway. Naturally, by there being more visitors, you're more likely to die there because more people die there. However, Backpacker Magazine names Denali National Park the most dangerous park after adjusting for outliers like the North Cascades that have a relatively small number of visitors per year. There have been 51 deaths in a 10-year period, which averages out to 9.8 deaths per million visitors, which is higher than any other national park ratio. Ooh, that's interesting. It makes me want to go there. It makes me scared to go there. <laughs> I actually already wanted to go to Denali, so. Okay, and then the next question is going to be, I'm going to make you an answer. Okay. What you think. How would I die in a national park? How would you die? How? What is the most common way 
to die in a national park. Let's go through the first few. Do I have choices or do I just No, go? you just have to go off of your heart. What do you think are the most... How many can I name? <laughs> there are like 12, but only like eight of them are interesting. Okay. Um, Number one. Uh, I'm overthinking this. Getting lost. Um, Drowning. Drowning is number one. Uh, I was between drowning and getting lost. Yeah, drowning is number one. Um, In Lake Mead National Recreation Area, which is one of the most frequently visited parks that have a lot of deaths. They've been dragging out bodies from that thing all of last year. Really? Yeah. They have twice the amount of drowning deaths than the next highest park. So they have over 50% higher or 100% higher than everybody else. Is getting lost on the list? Getting lost is not on the list. Um, I mean, that could also be like if you get lost, you could just starve to death. You could die of exposure. Hmm. Exposure is not on the list. Really? It's just the way that they are um, falling. Falling is number four. Falls and slips are number four. What do you think number two is? This one's this one surprised me. Um, <clears throat> animal attack? No, animal attack is very low. Murder? No, homicide is also very low. There have only been eight animal attack deaths between two thousand seven and twenty eighteen. And 17 homicides. And it's not starvation. No. I don't know. Motor vehicle crash. Oh, I wouldn't even thought I wouldn't that. have thought about that. I was surprised. So number one is drowning. Number two is motor vehicle crash. Three is undetermined. Four is falls and slips. Five is natural death. How can you put undetermined on the list of things that'll kill you? Right, so we'll just skip that because those are the things that they don't really know how they died. So then falls and slips, natural death, and then um, suicide, actually. Okay, so what do they do if I die? The National Park Service and local search and rescue teams, or SAR, as we will call them, will begin their search. These SAR teams are usually volunteer organizations that search not only at national parks, but often in waterways and other parks and forests. For example, the Mount Desert Island SAR team that we saw in Acadia assists with the main warden service and local fire departments. SAR teams may include volunteers, medical professionals, such as paramedics, EMTs, and RNs, trained scuba divers for water searches, and rock climbers. They run regular drills so everyone is prepared. The day we saw the MDI SAR, they were training on a vortex. This is a large metal tripod that serves as an artificial high directional for someone off the side of a cliff in a litter. Yeah, the litter is the little basket. It's like a gurney almost that they strap you into. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's like a little little peak and they drop you down the side of the mountain. It creates a little like, I don't know. A vortex? Fulcrum. I don't know. I, you know, I don't know about physics, but basically we searched this because we wanted to know what happened. It, it looks cool. Is all it I looks really say. cool. We'll put a picture on our Instagram, but Morgan found this because we were dying the whole time. Like, why are they here? 
And so they posted on their well, Facebook. Well, there was another death, I think a week or two before mm-hmm. we went there, where someone had died on the top bridge of one of the carriage bridges. That's right. Helicopters are often involved in body recoveries, especially in heavily forested or mountainous parks where otherwise it would be hard to get to the body or to get the body out. Parks may have helicopters of their own, but depending on the circumstances, they often have to outsource from other organizations. And if you're rescued alive with an outsourced helicopter, you may have to pay for your, their services, so don't be stupid. These can literally be thousands of dollars. These uh, operations cost thousands of dollars. Let's talk about one such helicopter recovery mission. 29-year-old mountaineer and nurse Madeline Baharlu Quivy fell to her death from a peak of Kit Carson's Peak in Colorado in October of 2021. So that was pretty recent. She had signaled for help one evening on a Monday while she was climbing and she reported that she was cliffed out so that's when you're unable to climb up but you can't get back either so you're kind of stuck she also texted a friend for help and was able to share her gps coordinates which i feel like was really lucky because a lot of times on these routes you you don't get any service yeah i mean that's great i mean she might have had one of those uh, you know people were like really in hiking they have like the extra gps type yeah. thing with them but either way, like, man, what services she has? Is it AT&T? Is right. it T-Mobile? Right. I need to know. I need to know. The local sheriff's office made a call out for volunteers that have training in winter alpine conditions. And then the next morning, crews started rolling in. Their search was limited as the bad weather started coming in. The following day, so this is Wednesday, she signaled on Monday. She was located by the searchers. Using aerial views from a helicopter, they were able to determine that she was dead, unfortunately. Wait, what the fuck? So it's interesting because they got a really good view of her. They got a good picture of her and were able to determine that she was dead from what they saw. But it was actually harder for them to reach her at that point. They weren't able to get to her. Wait, how did she die? She was just like texting her friend like, I'm hanging here, right? She was like probably hanging from a harness if she was climbing. Um, I think she was mountaineering, so she was stuck. I don't know if she was in harness or not, but she was like stuck for two days on the on like a precipice. But if you remember, the weather got really bad on Tuesday, so their search was limited. So she was out there Monday, Tuesday, and then on Wednesday she was located and she had passed away, unfortunately. Did she fall? Going from the information that they saw from the the helicopter, the searchers on the ground came within a hundred feet of her. But by the time it got dark, they had to turn around. They couldn't get to her. So then Saturday, the Alamosa volunteer SAR went out to look for her body using ropes and climbing harnesses. The trails near Madeline were closed to prevent rocks from falling on searchers climbing below. So there was actually a trail that ran right below where she was. But they were afraid that rocks were going to start falling on top of them. So they closed the climbing route. So when they found her, it appeared that she had fallen. She had tried to climb up higher than where she was when she sent out her GPS signal because she couldn't go back down. So she tried to find an alternate route Uh, at some point during that time. I don't know if it was when the weather started getting bad or, um, you know, she wasn't sure that anyone was coming. But at some point, she ended up falling. And that's what killed her. Wow. 
That's terrible. I mean, this is why it's so important. I mean, she was lucky that she did have access to her GPS information and had a signal. But, like, keep your phones charged if you are out and about by yourself. Gosh, that's so important. I don't know if it really would have helped her. She might have died of of exposure too Possibly. so it's hard to say but i'm just thinking if she did call the police if she was on the phone with somebody they could tell her you know stay in your place maybe that would have changed her decision making if she if she was talking to somebody or if she was able to know that somebody was coming she may right. not have moved locations that resulted in a fall right possibly, possibly. i mean i don't know yeah I don't know if she was able to make a call because I know sometimes it's easier to text than mm-hmm. to make a call. But I mean, regardless, the crew on the ground that had uh, used harnesses to climb up and get her secured her body. And then they were able to uh, put her in a kit and attach her to a helicopter that was from Colorado's Division of Fire Prevention and Control. So if she was alive, she probably would have had to pay for that. <laughs> well, Possibly her parents had to pay for that. Yeah, that's true. Or if she was married. I don't know. Sometimes they don't let that shit slide. They'll still be like, hey, we'll bring you the bill even though you didn't make it. I hope they let it slide, that poor girl. I hope they did, but I could see them not. I could too, unfortunately. Yikes. But yeah. And this is a good example of it being a difficult place to reach her because they were not able to reach her from below when they were walking up. They weren't able to reach her coming down from the helicopter and a lot of times i don't think that they want to use a person coming down from the helicopter unless it's life or death so they it's easier i think if they secure the body when someone has passed away to a kit and then you know attach them and bring them up yeah why why risk one life i mean the other body is lifeless so right exactly exactly damn i know She's my age. She's a nurse and she loves climbing. So I'm like, oh, I felt like kind of connected to her. I was like, this poor girl could be me. But also, again, obviously, you know, safety tips. Try to keep that phone charged. Also, don't go out alone and do something dangerous. Yeah. Like if there's any kind of risk, go in a group. Right. At least one other person. At least one other person. While we love hearing about these dramatic recoveries, according to one SAR organization, corpses are more often found accidentally by hikers or climbers or just not at all. I secretly want to discover a corpse. Okay, yes, it's not a secret. Secret's out. Um, <laughs> I think about this every time I'm in the woods anywhere. Even like at a park, I'm like thinking about all those crime shows I watch. Is that a body over there? <laughs> I'll like see a sticker like, is that it? Is that the body? <laughs> I know I'm going to find one someday. I'm going to find one. No, I don't want to find one. I don't want that responsibility, first of all. And especially if I'm like doing a tough hike or something, I don't have that kind of energy. Like I don't have that emotional energy to do that. If it happens and secretly, not so secretly, I hope it does, it's going to be when we are both together. Oh, absolutely. It's not going to be like without me. I'm going to have to be there for yeah. it. So what happens if I find a body in a national park? According to Aftermath.com, make sure to stay safe. Make sure that there's nothing in the area that could harm you upon discovering a body. 
your first thought might not be your own safety, but remember that human life and safety is always important. Check for any hazards in the surrounding environment, including falling items, dangerous chemicals, road traffic, wild animals, or even other people. Murderer. And this goes back to what you said, Morgan. Like, don't make the recovery effort dangerous for the person who's still alive. Like, it's not worth another human life. No, it most definitely is not. So next, once you realize that you are safe, you're going to call for help. Call 911. What will happen next will depend heavily on the condition of the body. If the body appears to be recently deceased, then be prepared to check for vital signs or even administer CPR. An unconscious or severely injured person can and often is easily mistaken for a corpse. But it might be possible to save a life with quick intervention. In some cases, it's even possible to revive a person who isn't breathing or doesn't have a heartbeat. If there is a chance the person is alive, an ambulance will be sent. You may also be given instructions from the dispatcher to help the victim in the meantime. That's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of pressure. It is a lot of pressure. You know what happens when I'm under pressure (laughs) and there's an emergency. (laughs) I am the kind of person that will act like I don't see it and walk away. Of course, if it's somebody I know, like if I was with you, Janelle. I would hope you would keep it together. I would keep, I would keep it together best I could. But uh, do you remember that one time you were, um, you were doing this whole dramatic thing showing how each of your friends would respond to an emergency or a dead oh, person that's when right. they walk in the room? Yeah. I feel like we need to make this into a TikTok or a reel. Oh, my God, yes. Um, because it's so funny. Because yours was pretending like you didn't see it and walking <laughs> away. Uh, I mean, I would hope I would be better than that in, like, a more serious situation. I freaking hope. <laughs> the thing that's really scary about national parks for this step of the calling for help is it's, a lot of times it's a lot harder when you don't have self-service. So hopefully it's somewhere that's a popular hike or something where you can run out and have someone get a ranger while you're staying with the body or make someone else stay with the body because that's what I would do. I'd be like, I'm going to get the ranger. You watch the dead guy. Yeah. I mean, a lot of places I've gone hiking, especially national parks, I do not have any cell signal. Right. So you you would really have to wait for another person. And that's going to be difficult to get an ambulance out there as well. Yeah. So third step here, first, it's make sure you're safe, call for help. Third would be get ready to talk to the police. Get ready to talk. You're under investigation, (laughs) mister. They will have questions and you will need to answer. What you can, of course. So the fourth step here would be after all this, make sure to get cleaned up. This body was in a public place and could be potentially hazardous. You don't and, know how they died. Yeah, you don't know how they died. Um, could be could, gross. There could be blood. You could have blood on you. Maggots. I don't know. Anthrax. Just, just get rid of your clothes. Burn them. <laughs> Dysentery. <laughs> you don't know. Lastly, take care of your emotional health. Listen, the family of that deceased better pay for my therapy because therapy's <laughs> not cheap. Especially when you see a body that that trauma doesn't go away, I'm sure. I mean, I've seen a lot of dead bodies, but it's a little different. Like when you're in a medical setting. 
when you just expected right i mean that's already traumatic but going out into the woods and just seeing someone who's passed away is just traumatic as hell i can't even imagine yeah so to get some of the down and dirty details about what it's like for body recovery search and rescue at national parks I read a book called Ranger Confidential by Andrea Lankford. She is an ex-ranger who's worked at Cape Hatteras, Zion, the Grand Canyon, and Yosemite during the 80s and 90s when female park rangers were few and far between. This is such a good book. Ooh, I'm so excited to read it. I cannot recommend it enough. Everyone needs to get this book. I felt like I got this like inside look onto what it's like being a ranger. It's really interesting because... She talks about how she was like, they called her a test case because they weren't allowing a lot of women in. And so then she was in one of the first groups that had multiple women. So that is so cool. That's badass. I love that. She's such a badass. There's also, after I started reading the book, I noted, I saw an episode on National Park After Dark podcast that I love so much. They interview her. It's the second episode second people in the parks episode if you want to listen to it it's really good she doesn't really talk about the stuff we're talking about today she's mostly talking about her experience as a woman in the park system and in the outdoors so that is also very good so this book is about uh the adventures of her and some of her co-workers that she's worked with over the years as they worked in various national parks she was a law enforcement ranger which i discovered that there's different types of rangers i just thought they were all one type And she had medic training as well. So she and her colleagues were part of many search and rescues and many body recoveries. The book is very intense in its descriptions, but it's great. I was especially interested to see these rescues and recoveries um, from the perspective of someone else in the medical field. She uses a lot of medical terminology, but in, um, but like dumbs it down so everyone can understand it. But does she have a medical background as well? She does. She's a medic. She actually became a nurse after oh, after really? this. Yeah. So she has the perspective of a nurse, but she was also a medic and their training is pretty intense when it comes to being a medic in a national park, it seems, because you don't have a lot of resources. Yeah, that's a really good point. You would Yeah, I would be interested to see what the training was for medics working in the national park versus just your everyday EMT. Right. That works in a city. Right. Yeah. I mean, her. it's really amazing to see her assessment skills and the way that they just do interventions that I'm like, I don't even know how you did that out in the wilderness, putting in an IV, holding an IV bag up and trying not to let your arm fall. Like, it's amazing. So that is a really interesting side of it as well. Ooh. She talks about drunk driving accidents, and people who died after taking stupid risks. Other people had unfortunate falls, were swept away in flash floods. Um, There's one about Zion in the slot canyons. I'd rather go for the goats. Right. right. (laughs) And people who faced sudden changes of weather that caused their deaths. She talks about how in 1996, there are 200 heat-related emergency calls in the Grand Canyon and eight deaths. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Like People were just dropping like flies. She pointed out how important it is to stay vigilant and be smart in the parks, but you really can't protect yourself from anything. There's so many like freak accidents or 
works of nature that you really can't prepare for. In one story, Lankford's co-worker was a part of a crew that went to recover bodies from a plane crash at Grand Canyon National Park. What? Yeah. That, that is so cool. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not cool that there was a plane crash. But it's cool that she got to be part of this search and recover type dealio. Right. I mean, it's very unique, especially for a national park. Like, I don't know how often planes crash there, but... Probably not often, because plane crashes just are not common anyway. No. So this one was relatively easy to to reach when we talk about accessibility. So they drove up a car, and then there was a lot of snow, so they had to walk the rest of the way. But they were able to walk to the site of the crash. When they got there, there was... It was a very grisly scene. There was apparently a body that was still on fire. And the firefighters who were there in the crew just took handfuls of snow and threw it on the body to put out the fire. I thought that was, at first I was like, what the, like, this is actually how you do it? Like buckled in? What? Was the body buckled in still on fire or just? Um, I can't remember. There was a lot of different bodies with like, parts like, oh my gosh. I was like, this is seriously how you put out a fire. But then I was like, this is so resourceful because in a lot of, these areas of the parks, you don't have like a reliable water source. Yeah, they wouldn't have the big fire hose. Right. There's not fire hydrants. Yeah. Miraculously, actually, two teen girls survived the accident. One sister was burned uh, over 85% of her body and the other was bleeding eternally. But they were able to get them out and send them to a hospital in Phoenix. And they both made a full recovery. Wow, that's amazing. It really is. I mean, considering, too, that they're so far from a medical facility. They're in the woods. Yeah. Well, I mean, luckily, this place seemed that it wasn't too hard for them to reach. It was just really out of the way if you weren't, like, a park ranger. Right, exactly. But they luckily had a car nearby that they could just... I mean, 85% of your body being burned, that is not good odds, but... Wow. Yeah, it was really intense, but... It's good. It was a good body recovery story, but also there's a happy ending for a couple people. So I like that about it. Damn. And so Andrew Langford also describes multiple helicopter rescues, which makes sense because the majority of the parks that she worked in were super mountainous. She tells a story about one of her friends uh, named Mary who worked at Yosemite. Four climbers were attempt- attempting to climb El Capitan, and if that's the one from Free Solo that Alex Honnold free climbed. That watching that makes me want to throw up. So interesting. I love that movie. Also, if you haven't seen Free Solo, that's another good one. It's where basically Alex Honnold's like one of the biggest climbers in the world, and he's climbing this huge, famous climbing route, one of the hardest, apparently. And he climbs it with no gear. Don't watch it if you have bad anxiety, though, because it's just going to be that way the entire way through. Oh, yeah, that, that too. Probably a good disclaimer. So these four climbers were caught in heavy rains and freezing temperatures and this huge, like a big stream of water and snow broke loose above them and then just drenched on them, like totally soaked. Now, are they in harnesses? They are in harnesses, yeah. So they're making their way up. They come to this uh, to this little 
precipice where they were able to stand and rest. But it was getting cold overnight. They're absolutely soaked. And there's really nowhere they can go from there. Around sunset, a call came in to the ranger station from some passersby who heard the men screaming on the mountain. So the park rangers were joined by other non-ranger employees that were helping with like loading gear, driving, anything that they can help with, in a volunteer crew known as SARSiders. And these are rock climbers who have that, you know, obviously that special skill of rock climbing, who volunteered with search and rescue efforts in, in exchange for free campsites, which is a good fucking deal. I'm sorry. If I'm putting my life at danger, I'm going to want more than a free campsite. Most people don't get anything, though. Most search and rescue get nothing. It's all volunteer. Free annual pass to the parks, free parking. They get a special, there's a special campsite just for search and rescue. So they have their own private, like, campsite with good rock climbing. Okay. It's something. Apparently it's worth it because they're in for it. A nighttime rescue is dangerous, obviously, because you can't see. The rescuers set off by snow machine. Um, is that what those are called? It's like the sn- snowmobile. 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 They kept saying snow machine. I'm like, I never <laughs> called it's a snow machine. It's a snowmobile, right? Yes, that's what it is. The rescuers set off by snowmobile and plan to snowshoe to the peak of El Cap to lower supplies down to the climbers so they could stay safe and warm and dry until sunrise when it would be easier to rescue them. But the, what is it called? Snowmobile. But the snowmobiles were unable to handle the heavy snow and their tires got all janky. So the rescuers were stranded and forced to camp for the night. This is where the author's friend Mary comes in. She was working at a desk as a secretary. She was trying to get a full-time ranger gig, but she wasn't, you know, it's hard to get in. So she was the B team who came in. They flew her to the peak in a military helicopter, and they set up a little lowering system at the edge, sort of like we were talking about earlier. Was that that Vortex? Yes, yeah. It's very similar to that. So she is at the edge. She's in a harness, and they basically kind of lower them down. She kind of rappels down the mountain to pick them up. As she's about to go down, the guys from the A-team who were brought over the night before are like coming in their helicopter comes in and they're like, let me take over. And she's like, no. And just goes. <laughs> she, she wanted her chance to prove herself. So she's a badass. So she's lowered down. And then another person is lowered down. There's two rescuers to come get these guys. They set up the climbers like two by two up these ropes. They have to climb up these ropes and there are edge attendants at the, peak and these guys or gals are harnessed to ropes like they're clipped into ropes so they can lean out over the edge and help grab the rescued people and get them up over the edge that makes me nauseous to think of having my body like halfway over the edge like looking down yes you can actually see that in the picture that we're going to post from the um, mdi the main sar but i think that would actually be more scary than being lowered down there I mean, being lower down would also be very scary. Yeah. So when you're saying they're climbing up ropes, so they're giving ropes to these climbers that are needing rescue that they need to climb up. Yeah. Are they clipped into them or are they just climbing? Yeah, I'm sorry. They are clipped in. They're clipped okay. in. They're harnessed in. So they put them on a harness and they have to climb up these ropes. 
which is exhausting. Actually, they point out in the book that they, if they would have had more time, they could have set up another system so that they could have pulled them up from the top. But it's a, it's a more complex system for them to set up. I'm surprised that they didn't hook them into something that was like a rope or something coming down from the helicopter who could just then fly over to where everybody is on the top of the cliff and lower them down. Okay, so this is a great point because it's more dangerous to do a helicopter rescue directly from the helicopter because the helicopter runs the risk of running into something and crashing because you have to be so close. It's dangerous for more dangerous for the rescuer, for the rescuee and the helicopter driver. But they did lower her down yes. from the helicopter. Yes, but it's it's safer to lower you down to the peak of a mountain because there's nothing around you when you're in the helicopter. Mm-hmm. But if it's going to lower you down to the side, they're closer to like the mountain face. They're closer to trees and things like that. Now and there's more she, for her to hit. Does she get out of the helicopter? Like, is she now climbing up with them? Like, yeah. So she's, so she lowered herself, she lowered down onto the peak and they came up first and then her and the last rescuer come up. And as they're coming up, the bad weather starts to roll in. It's starting to get really cold, really blustery. And no one, no one, last question. Nobody is Alex Honnelling this thing, right? Everybody's clipped into something. Everybody's clipped in. No Alex Honnelling okay, here. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, because she kind of got them, she had some time to kind of get everybody harnessed and clipped in. And they had their own harnesses because they were climbing anyway. But she got them all ready and set while the other rescuer was coming down. She had time to like explain everything to them. So yeah, basically, as they're getting up to the top of the mountain, they've got the two helicopters there. They put the rescuees and the majority of the rescuers in the first helicopter. They fly out, and then the weather is literally getting awful and unflyable. So they all like climb up and leave their gear, the last couple people, and get into the helicopter and fly out, and everybody survived. The end. That's a happy ending. It was a happy ending. I know it really wasn't like a body recovery, but I think it was a really good explanation of how the helicopter rescues work when mm-hmm. it comes to somewhere that's like really difficult. There's a lot in this book, but I thought thought that would be the highlights there. There's a lot of deaths and a lot of recoveries. It's like crazy. Ooh. Some of them are kind of gory, so just strap yourself in, but it's 100% worth it. So the last thing or person we're going to cover is this guy. He goes by Beast Runner, and I stumbled upon his YouTube videos. This man is from Taiwan, and he is a private contractor who searches for people who have gone missing in the forest. Very cool job. He'll vlog like the entire thing. So I've watched his videos where he goes out and sometimes he finds somebody alive. Oftentimes they're not. This is when, you know, the government has stopped searching for this person. They're not going to put any more effort into it. It's too dangerous for them, blah, blah, blah. So family will come in. They uh, find this guy, the beast runner, and they pay him to go out into these very remote areas of like these lush beautiful forests to look for their loved one and both Janelle and I have watched some of these videos one in particular I think the first one I watched was a man who was found deceased 
I don't know for how long, but he was found in the water. It took him a while to find him. He kept kind of, I don't even know how this man finds people. He's just like, where would I go if I was lost in the woods? You know, where yeah. would I go? Probably a water source. Where, what would happen? Maybe I'd, like, he just finds them. It's, I mean, it's honestly amazing. But I don't know. Did you watch that one too where he finds the man? I did. I think there's two of them where he finds someone in the water. But there's one of them it took him like 29 days to find somebody. It really is amazing because I'm like, how many times would I have walked past the same thing? Like he covers so much ground and I really don't think I would have noticed. I would have walked right past every single one of those guys. Yeah. And it's really interesting. So in this one particular case, they did find the body of someone who had been missing in the water and you said i think this is probably the one you're talking about it's, it took like 29 days mm-hmm. once he found them though they're they're so far into the the jungle really and in such a precarious place he cannot on his own take this man out so he has to leave note where he's at come back with an entire team of people to rescue the body yeah and it sounds like he just like went into town and found nine strong men that wanted to come help him yes it was so cool that like the camaraderie here these people Mm -hmm. were like yeah i wasn't busy working today so i guess i'll come and help yeah yeah and then they just strap him up and they literally drag him out it's interesting too i think what he does once he finds the bodies because i so they did that the one time another time i know that he the one person he had to take out come back with someone and take out and put him in a clearing and then call a helicopter to come pick him up but they have to like they do the work of securing the body and then another one i I thought was was a little different they they basically put him on a kit and then dragged him out this back way out of the forest i don't know i don't think he was that far off the trail either which was scary because they just ended up like dragging him down the trail Mm -hmm. and back out so I don't know. It was just interesting to see, like, what he did once he found them. Yeah, and the process that it takes to actually... its I mean, it's one thing to find the body, mm-hmm. which is already such a feat in itself, but to remove the body from the area to get it back to the family. And a lot of these circumstances, I mean, it is difficult. But yeah, it's pretty amazing. If you're interested in learning more about search and recovery especially in some of these really thick really thick really thick national parks like this one's in taiwan so maybe it's their national park i don't know uh but they're just very difficult recoveries and very they're very very thick they're thick (laughs) thick with two q's it's really beautiful these parks are beautiful i told matthew i wanted to go there and he was like Literally everybody is dying here. I'm like, no, 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 it's fine. Yeah. I mean, again, these are all people who ventured out on their own. Exactly. And they went off the trail 90% of the time. I mean, there's a couple who didn't, but they were all off the trail by some. I liked, I mean, I don't want to say I liked, but he kind of shows the emotion he's going through when he finds the bodies. And so you can kind of see like the disappointment and grief on his face. I'm sure it's always hard coming across that after all your hard work. Especially in the in the state that these bodies are probably in. Yeah, that's true. I mean, these are bodies who have been long deceased. A lot of 
most of these that I've watched were water rescues, just thinking about what happens to the body, how that person is not going to look at all like themselves. They could be partially eaten by animals in the jungle. I don't know. Like, that would be really tough to yeah. see that. Yeah, it's a really interesting channel. So go ahead and follow Beast Runners on YouTube if you're interested in checking out more of these. I think I watched like three in a row because you kind of just get addicted to it. Mm-hmm. but yeah just another example of recovery efforts this might be the most important question of this whole thing how do i prevent being search and rescued i found some suggestions from the acadia national park website so i'm just going to share some of these Tell people where you are and where you'll be in the park. Be careful by the edges of cliffs. Kind of sad you got to, like, tell people these things, but. Have you seen some of the pictures that come up on social media of people, like, hanging halfway off a cliff? Like, look how cool I am. You did that at the Cliffs of Mohair. You and Morgan, or you and Allie. There's also that picture of me in Iceland, too, standing we right at the We were not that close. You were afraid to sit down there. I First was. of all, okay, <clears throat> we were at the Cliffs of Mohair. We were, yeah, there's a big drop, but we weren't, like, on the harsh cliff edge. Like, I guess we kind of were. But it was, like, a hill. It's, like, a little hill first. It was there a lot of people got way closer. Do you remember seeing yes. some of those other people? There was this person. I only saw their head over the edge of the cliff. I don't know what the fuck they were standing on, but I was like, this person's about to die because the cliffs like disintegrate. They're made of literal dirt. Yeah. I mean, I don't think what we were doing was that dangerous. No. no. It was just, I think the visual of it was a little, when you're sitting down looking at it, worrisome, but nothing like that one man who's just like taking selfies everywhere he's the reason that they need to put this on the website yes all right stay put if you become separated from the other members of your group so they can circle back and find you what are you looking at me for remember when i almost didn't stay put and i went almost went down to the car like i was literally turning around to leave you (laughs) if i would have driven away into town I was the lost one, though, maybe. Yeah, so I feel like that makes a difference. You know, if you think somebody's in danger, maybe you should go get help. Yeah. Listen to our Iceland episode if you want to hear about the time that I, Morgan, thought I fell off a cliff. All right. When in doubt, ask a park ranger. I feel like they're freaking everywhere. When when we were at Acadia. We didn't have a park pass when we went to Acadia because... We didn't have a printer and they wanted us to print it off. So we found a park ranger as soon as we got out of the car. And we're like, great. We're going to go to National Park Jail. Well, they pulled up right behind us. So we oh, like yeah. parked to go down to the beach. When we came back up from the beach, there was the ranger car right behind us. And we're like, oh, shit, we're getting ticketed. But we weren't. They just simply parked there. Yeah. And I asked him about it. He's like, oh, I don't care. Just go to the next place and get it. That's fine. He was real cool. Bring at least 20 ounces of water. I said, <laughs> when we went to Angel's Landing, we brought like one water bottle and one Gatorade for both of us. And we were so freaking thirsty. So 20 ounces of water, I'm thinking per person. I brought something the size of the water bottle that's in my hand. And this one says 26 ounces. <laughs> that was not enough. No. If it's going to be hot, 20 ounces is not enough. This is also at Acadia where it's not quite as hot. So... 
Minimum. Bring a map. You can't rely on cell service, as we've seen in some cases. Bring warm and waterproof clothing, flashlight, and first aid, in case something happens. Stay on the path. Don't change or make new trail markers or cairns. In um, the Beast Runners, most of the people veered off the path, and that's how... I dead. do get how that could be easy at some points. Yeah, if you're oh, totally. in a place that doesn't have markings very close together, mm-hmm. you could think that you missed one. Or not know where to go. We mm-hmm. almost went up this like total back away on the Beehive Trail at Acadia. Like for real. Like rock climb. I was away. about to yeah, I was like about to like rock climb and there's these people going around and I'm like, <laughs> they're on the wrong side of the barrier. How stupid. <laughs> Reader, we were on the wrong side of the barrier. <laughs> They were like, hey, are you girls okay over there? I'm like, yeah, why are they asking us that? Are they okay over there? <laughs> so I can, we can definitely see what, how that could be hard. Wear studi shoes. Studi shoes. <laughs> ah! Wear sturdy shoes. Be aware that rain can make the trail slick. Don't turn your back. <laughs> Wait a minute. Do you remember that person on Angel's Landing that was wearing Converse? I forgot about that. And I was like really getting uncomfortable because Converse don't have, like they're slick. So that was really dumb. This is why they put this on here. Yes. Don't turn your back on the ocean during stormy weather. Be aware of tides when hiking near the shoreline. Um, assess the difficulty of a trail before you go. Make sure your whole group can complete it. I feel like this is really important, too, because in a lot of, in the book that I read and a lot of things online, I found how many search and rescue calls come in because people can't finish. They just get tired. They're calling search and rescue because they're tired? So in some cases, I think that they're so physically fatigued that they can't get back, which is definitely understandable. But there, I was reading one in... Andrea Langford's book about how there were these climbers and they wanted to come down, but they didn't want to like come all the way down. He was too tired. And the guy was like insistent that they come search and rescue, come get them. The other guy climbing with them was like, we don't have to do this. We can whatever rappel down. We can finish the climb. We can just rest for a little bit. And he's like, no, we pay for this. We pay for the national parks. We should have them rescue. They have the option to just rappel down? I think so, yeah. I mean, you can get down the other way. Remember that time we needed to get rescued when we were on that bike trail? Needed, air quotes. Oh, my God. That was the most embarrassing moment I'm just going to leave it there. We did have to get rescued once when we were on a bike trail. It was pouring down rain. It was pouring down rain, and we were, every single one of us was having difficulties of our own Allie's back was broken <laughs> you got sunscreen on your eye right yes and I my chain came off the bike I fixed it but I don't know how to fix the bike it was bad <laughs> so there's some other things from other sources that I found this is one that was recommended but what one person who recommended it was the guy from the beast runners carry a satellite phone if you're going to be at a place with poor reception and they have an SOS button. So a satellite phone will work anywhere. If you hit the SOS button, they can contact rescue authorities and they can find your exact location. 
but they're expensive as hell though so how expensive are they i don't know let me look i mean it, it would be well worth the investment if you're doing this kind of thing if you're often. doing it a lot it absolutely would be worth it um i'm gonna continue while i do this we'll actually see oh oh shit like four hundred dollars Oh, I when you said oh shit, I thought it was gonna be like four thousand dollars. No, well, I was thinking like two hundred dollars. Okay, four hundred dollars. Like, if you're you pay, doing, you pay more f- for your iPhone. That's true. That if you're thinking about, but you how use much, your iPhone more. True, but if you're thinking about how much a regular cell phone is, that's not gonna do you any good out in the woods. Those are a lot more expensive. Right, and if you're doing this a lot, it's well worth the investment. Um, oh, tr- do some physical training before you attempt a tough hike. Don't go in trying to climb El Cap when you're climbing V0 to the gym. Me, when I was like, I'm going to work out and like do the stair climber and like put it on incline before we go to Angel's Landing. You and did none of that. I did not. I kind of wish that I did, though, because those, I don't know. Those Walter's th- Wiggles. What? The switchbacks are called Walter's Wiggles. No, they're not. Yeah, they are. I think that's really funny. Um, <laughs> I'm like, wait, my dog? Uh, <laughs> that's his tail, Walter's Wiggles. Yeah, those were really tough. Mm-hmm. Especially without any water. Yup. So don't get searched and rescued. We warned you. You know better now. So now you have no excuse I mean, things happen, so you, I better not find out that you did something stupid to get search and rescued, okay? But if you did, I want to know. That's true. Yeah, I do want to know. We're going to be disappointed in you, and there, but mm, tell us anyway. Rapple down the mountain? Hike through the woods? Rapple? Rappel. Rappel. Rapple down the mountain. Rapple down the mountain. Let me rapple down the mountain. Rappel. Okay. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please rate and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram at official underscore plot twist pod. Music is courtesy of Matthew Modena and our resources are in the show notes.